From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line with today's host, Father John Tregilio. In North America, call toll-free 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985 or send an email to openline at EWTN.com. A tremendous Monday to each and every one of you. Thanks so much for tuning in to EWTN's Open Line. Father John Tregilio is in the house. If you've got a question, uh, you can send us an email. Well, check that. You can give us a call at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're outside the United States and Canada... Your number is 1-205-271-2985. And we'll even put you straight to the front of the line at 1-205-271-2985. And you can always send us an email. That email address is openline at EWTN.com. I'm Jack Williams, Michael McCall producing the program. Your call screener is Matt Gubensky and Jeff Burson handling our social media efforts. So if you're watching us on YouTube or Facebook Live, you can type a question into the chat window and it may find its way to us by the end of the program. And our host is he is every Monday, Father John Tregilio. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you. Um, got an email here from Gary. It says, I went to a healing service once where a priest put his hand up close to my forehead. He didn't touch me, but I felt something pushing against my forehead. I did not feel like, it didn't feel like a human touch. Have you ever heard of this phenomenon happening before? Uh, Not necessarily in in that uh, description, but I have witnessed and I've heard of priests and uh, deacons, uh, as well as lay people, who have prayed for healing and they've uh, either imposed hands by actually touching someone on the head or just hovering it over them and someone feeling something. And uh, we certainly believe the Holy Spirit can, can heal and does heal people. Um, and the fact that you feel something um, is not necessarily indicative that you are indeed going to be physically uh, restored to health. It's certainly a prayer and the intention of, of the person who's praying for your healing I don't know if there's an exact um, terminology for that. Like we have glossolalia, which is the uh, phenomena where someone speaks in tongues uh, with the praying for healing. If you feel, even though the, you, as this person said that they didn't feel the priest's hands, they felt something. Um, I'm not disclaiming that it could have been supernatural or that it could have been, you know, directly uh, from God's Almighty will. At the same token, it may be more. It could be physiological. You know, it could be explained through other um, means. So that's why the church, um, you know, very cautiously, you know, uh, proceeds ahead with these things. Uh, here's a question that we, we field from time to time, Father John. Norman writes in, Although the Western world didn't have much information about the Holocaust until about 1945, the invasion of Poland in 1939 was well known. I've read about why the Vatican and the Holy See remained neutral during the uh, during World War II, but it's a lot of rhetoric to sort out. Could you explain why the Pope would not side with the Allies, condemn the, condemn the atrocities being carried out in Poland, um, 
And uh, why Pope Pius the Twelfth had to know? He's saying Pope Pius the Twelfth had to have known what was happening. Yeah, there was, there's been a number of uh, good and credible um, biographies on the life of Pope uh, Pius the Twelfth. I especially recommend that the one that was written by Sister Marguerite Marchioni. Uh, she's um, a maestra di Filippini. Uh, their Italian order of, of nuns. Uh, their main headquarters here in the United States is in Morristown, New Jersey. She did extensive research on this and showed that Pope Pius XII did a lot of things behind the scenes uh, to help uh, rescue Jews, not only in the city of Rome, but also sent the word out that monasteries and convents around the world should take them in uh, to protect them. Now, the reason why he didn't come out publicly, you know, <laughs> they have to realize that, you know, the Vatican has no means of defense, even though it's an independent city-state. And Pope Pius XII was concerned that if he came out too forcefully against Hitler, even though he did write uh, a letter condemning Nazism and that, because the Nazis could have very easily closed all the churches, arrested all the priests, and then the church wouldn't have been able to do anything. So by remaining neutral, it didn't mean that they, he was giving support to the Nazis. In fact, Hitler wanted the opposite. He wanted him to support uh, the uh, National Socialism, and Pius XII refused. Likewise, what was going on precisely uh, in the death camps, we could very easily look at today in, in 2022 and say, how could they have not known? Remember, in the 1930s, uh, there was no Internet. There was no uh, immediate process and uh, communication of information. Uh, people did, I mean, there was a closed society. There was absolute secrecy. So it's kind of difficult for us to imagine, but we have to, that you know, information was not that easily shared and to what extent uh, people knew what details. But uh, I think it's kind of unjust and unfair on Pope Pius XII and on the church in general. When you look at the fact that Golda Meir, uh, who was the prime minister of the state of Israel, um, gave thanks to the work that Pius XII did during World War II, the chief rabbi uh, in the city of Rome uh, converted uh, to Catholicism because of Pius XII. The New York Times, all right, <laughs> the infamous New York Times, uh, right after the war uh, appraised Pius XII, and then after this uh, crazy um, play was written, decided to, to trash him. So we always have to look at history in, in terms of context. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. Um, Mary is watching us on YouTube, and she says, How are we to interpret 1 John chapter 3, verse 9? This makes it seem that those who have been baptized cannot commit mortal sin. And just for, the, uh, for our listeners who may not be familiar with that verse, it reads, um, No one born of God commits sin, for God's nature abides in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. Yeah, it's not a, a, an ontological uh, statement that is being made there uh, in the gospel. It's talking about if you are truly deeply rooted in the fact that you are a child of God and that by baptism you've been born again, then you will not want to sin. But it doesn't mean that you cannot sin. All right, it means that you cannot, in the sense that you know it it it, it goes against your your nature in a sense, but you still have free will. We see this in the in the fact that Judas could have said no. Um, Peter uh, denied him, but then repented. Um, Mother Teresa of Calcutta often talks about how it was a struggle 
uh, every day of, of her life. And every saint admits the fact that they never saw this as a done deal, that once saved, always saved. So we have to always, again, like Father Levis would say so often on our show, Web of Faith, if you take the text of Scripture out of context, you have a pretext. So you always have to look at these verses of Scripture in their totality. What does the whole Gospel of John say? What does the New Testament say? What does the Bible say? And then what does sacred tradition say? 833-288-EWTN. That's our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. Michael is watching on YouTube. And he says, there have been two times when I went to confession where I wasn't asked to make an act of contrition. In both cases, I included an act of contrition anyway, in addition to the penance I was given. But should this be a concern? It's a concern that the priest isn't celebrating the rite properly, but it's a, it certainly is a valid confession. As long as he says the words of absolution, uh, as the Church uh, defines them, uh, your, sin, your sins are absolved um, but the priest should ask for your the act of contrition. Now, I know when there's a, a penance celebration, a communal one, not a general absolution where everybody gets absolved at the same time, which is only done in extreme emergencies with the bishop's permission, like when we had Three Mile Island in, in my diocese of Harrisburg some 20-some years ago. Um, but if on a normal case where, you know, like at Advent and Lent, there's a lot of penitents and there's like several priests, uh, sometimes they'll have everybody do the act of contrition uh, together um, to save time. I'm not necessarily fond of that because I think, you know, you're not saving a lot of, uh, what, what, not even a minute, it's like, what, 30 seconds to say that. Um, but it's still valid. But I would prefer that priests stick to the ritual and that the people say the ad contrition after they say their sins, especially you must confess all known mortal sins since your last confession. And then he must say the, uh, the prayer of absolution as part of the sacrament. So although this is unfortunate that it happened, it still, re- I mean, it does not render his uh, confession invalid. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. It's a free phone call anywhere in North America. 833-288-3986. Uh, also, if you're outside the United States and Canada, we'd love to hear from you. That number is one 271 2985 and we'll even put you straight to the front of the line at 1-205-271-2985. It's EWTN's Open Line Monday with Father John Tregilio. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. If you have a question... Call 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. Or send us an email to openline at EWTN.com. That's right, 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. A couple of open lines at 833-288-3986. You know, you can hear EWTN Radio on most of your uh, smart speaker systems that are out there. For instance, all you have to do if you have an Amazon Echo is say, Alexa, play EWTN Radio. Um, first up today is Jeff in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Jeff, thanks for holding. Welcome to the program. 
Thanks very much. Hi, Father John. I've got a young friend. Uh, you know, my, my faith is the most precious thing to me, um, and it, it's, it, you know, I, I practice it to a certainty. So I've got a young friend who's suffering in the world, but he's not turning to his creator. He's talking about karma and reincarnation. Um, and I just, I, I, I seem to provoke ang anger when I give him the truth. What, what do you recommend? Well, um, certainly <clears throat> you want to pray for him all the more. Uh, prayer is very powerful, and um, I, would, I myself will add to, to praying for him. Um, sometimes argument alone doesn't do the, the job. As Jesus said, a prophet is not without honor except in his own home. I would dare say even among your own family and friends. So I wouldn't want you not to try, but the same token, uh, it, you're not going to win him over merely by argument and debate. Certainly by good example, uh, certainly by prayer. I would also make up some, make some sacrifices for him, very small, very modest. Talk to your confessor, or spiritual director first, but offering up some little uh, sacrifice for him, and uh, you know, wait for him to ask. You know, if you have any advice or could recommend something to read. But if he's resilient against this. Um, you're not going to win him over by, by, there's no one argument that you can say. But certainly, definitely pray for him. Make some kind of sacrifice. For instance, you know, if you drink coffee in the morning and you usually put a little milk or sugar, um, you know, one day a week, two days a week, drink it without putting it in. Or conversely, do the opposite. If you drink black coffee, put a little milk or sugar in it once a week and make that little sacrifice for him. It's not going to be an enormous thing, but... Uh, you're not doing this to impress God. You're doing it for the spiritual uh, benefit. And uh, so your acts of self-denial, your acts of prayer may be more efficacious than any words you might say to, uh, to him. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. It's a free phone call anywhere in North America. 833-288-3986. Uh, next up is Jose in San Diego, California. He is listening to EWTN on the EWTN app. Jose, you're on with Father John Tregilio. Yeah, hey, Father, I just wanted to ask if uh, praying for the souls of purgatory is an act of charity. Absolutely, it is an act of charity. You're doing it out of love for, for them as you know, fellow uh, children of God, as brothers and sisters in Christ. Um, and remember, the souls of purgatory will remember you, even though... You you don't know them by name. They know you by name. God reveals that to them. So uh, you praying for them, helping them uh, in their purgation, uh, believe me, you're going to have a lot of powerful intercessors when they leave purgatory. But even now, they can intercede for you too. The only people who can't intercede for us are the damned in hell. But the souls in purgatory and the saints in heaven, as well as the living on earth, can uh, pray for each other. Does that help, Jose? Oh, yeah. Thank you very much. You're very welcome. Thank you so much for the phone call. We appreciate it. Uh, that opens up a line for you. Give us a call at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Beth writes in, Is it true that we have a reasonable hope that all men are saved? No. <laughs> I don't want to be too blunt, but uh, we can hope and pray, and, and, I, and I certainly believe... Um, you know, prudence gives us good cause to think that uh, a good portion are saved, in, only in that, you know, 
why would more people be damned than 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 saved? But um, we're told that it's possible uh, for someone to repent, and someone's even as holy as Mother Teresa can go bad at the end. So you you know it's never a done deal until you leave this earth because your will is always operative until you know you actually die, and it's not a matter of how many you know bonus points you have in your reserve, like your those frequent farm miles people have when they're traveling. So I did a lot of good when I was young, so I can mess around when I'm old. It doesn't work that way. Um, and I know some people believe that almost everybody, or if not everyone, actually goes to heaven. Well, that's not what Jesus talks about. He talks about you know the pains of hell, uh, the fires of hell, where the worm dies not, where the teeth grind. He says that out of love. In the same way, a doctor would say, you keep smoking, you're going to get lung cancer. You know, you keep doing this, you're going to get a heart attack. Uh, they say it out of love because it's the truth, and you want to save someone's life. In the spiritual realm, it, it's equally true. We don't want anyone to go to hell. Now, remember, God doesn't send people to hell. People condemn themselves by their free will actions, and we can hopefully pray that they change their mind and, and get away from that. But uh, it's it's a possibility that you have to always remember uh, is looming there, and I want to fight it with all my strength every day of my life. Um, Arnold writes in, is there any documented evidence of Mary's assumption at the Dormition? Was she buried and then her body disappeared? Well, there's uh, non-biblical um, references to Mary's assumption, an apocryphal uh, book called The Assumption of, of Our Lady. Um, the Church has declared it's not inspired, so it's not part of sacred scripture. Um, but that doesn't discount it as of having some merit in the same way that the Proto-Evangelium of James is not inspired. It's not in the Bible, but we believe that accurately tells us the names of Mary's uh, parents, Joachim and Anne, which would then be Jesus's grandparents. Um, and the church believed this uh, from the very beginning, uh, you know, the, the ancient liturgical feasts of the Assumption of Our Lady, or as they call it in the Eastern Church, the Dormition, the falling asleep of Mary. So, there is nothing uh, in terms of corroborative uh, physical evidence, but uh, likewise, you know, at the resurrection of Christ, there were appearances of Jesus after the resurrection, but nobody eyeball witnessed the actual resurrection itself, but we believe that it indeed happened. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833 Three nine eight six. Next up is Teresa, a first-time caller in St. Louis, Missouri, listening on Covenant Radio. Teresa, you're on with Father John Tregilio. Good afternoon, gentlemen. Hello. Um, I would, I would like to know um, the souls that Jesus raised, or the bodies that Jesus and all the apostles raised from the dead. Where did their souls go the first time they died? Okay, the first time uh, someone died before Jesus, you know, opened the gates of heaven on Good Friday, uh, their souls uh, were not yet able to go to heaven. Nobody could go to heaven, not Adam and Eve, and nobody from Adam and Eve, even up to good St. Joseph, could get into heaven. But they were not in hell, the hell of the damned, but we sometimes refer to, like in the creed, he descended into hell. It was the hell of the dead, or sometimes called the limbo of the dead. It was a place where just people went, uh, waiting for the coming of the Savior and waiting for the act of redemption, which took place on Good Friday when Jesus died for our sins. So all those people's souls were 
for want of better terminology, uh, analogously, you could say they were in a waiting room, waiting, and there's a beautiful picture, an icon of Jesus on Good Friday. Uh, on the top, he's on the cross dying, and then down below you see Jesus breaking the chains that had Adam and Eve and all the good people waiting uh, to get into heaven. So what about Lazarus's soul between the time he was dead and was then reanimated? Yeah, those four days he was in the in the tomb, because remember Martha said, you know, there's going to be a stench, he's been dead for four days. His soul would have had to have gone to that place, okay? He couldn't have gone to heaven because heaven was not open yet, all right? Uh, so, and then his body, which then died a second time, all right, it, it has to wait for the, the resurrection of the dead with the rest of us. Does that help, Teresa? So then the people that the apostles raised from the dead, Jesus would already have gone to heaven, so where did their souls go then? Okay, um, the church has never solemnly defined what, you know, what, what happened. I Theologically, if your soul is in heaven, then it cannot leave, all right? So if they were in purgatory, there's no theological repugnancy that if they were in purgatory that they would have been sent back into their bodies uh, in, in, the, in that particular occasion. But once you're in heaven, you're always in heaven, and once in hell, always in hell. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. 833-288-3986. Greg wants to know, why is there a difference between two of the Gospels? One says, be perfect as your Heavenly Father is perfect, while another says, be merciful as your Heavenly Father is merciful. Well, there's a couple of explanations there. One, you're looking at an English translation, so uh, and the the translator has some liberty because pick up any dictionary, uh, a dual dictionary, say Latin, English, French, or Italian in English. When you look up a word, there are a number of possible um, equivalences that you can use that would be accurate. And so sometimes the translator uses a different word, uh, but also we believe that Jesus probably said things more than once. Like we have the Sermon on the Plain and the Sermon on the Mount. One's in Matthew's Gospel, one's in Luke's Gospel. Uh, there's sim similarities uh, in, you know, blessed are the poor in spirit in Matthew's Gospel, but Luke has an extra feature. Blessed are the poor in spirit, but woe to you who are rich. Why did Matthew leave that out? Well, did he leave it out? Maybe the one he went to, Jesus, that's what he said, because, you know, I was a pastor in two parishes, Guess what? You use the same material more than once <laughs> on Sunday morning. I, I didn't come up with a whole new sermon at the other parish. It was a nine-mile drive, and maybe I tweaked it a little bit, but I kept the substance the same. I believe that's what our Divine Lord did as well. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Um, Jennifer wants to know if there are any specific verses that she can point to to prove that the Old Testament dietary laws don't apply to Christians today. <laughs> Uh, well, I I don't have them all mem memorized. Come on, get but, Jennifer uh, <laughs> off the hook, Father. <laughs> I would say, you know, when Jesus, um, you know, uh, he talks about in in the gospel, he's come not to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. Um, the law that, there's two aspects of the law. You have the divine law that comes directly from God, as we see in the Ten Commandments. You have human law that was devised by human beings, and a good portion of the Mosaic law, the dietary laws, uh, were were uh, made by men. But also, the ones that came from God in the during the time of, of the Exodus were time specific. 
So, for instance, um, you know, the, the prohibition against eating pork and other things like that, uh, Christians, you know, abandon that. Because remember, in the New Testament, Peter has that vision of things falling out of the sky, and he's told to eat. He says, no, I'm not allowed to. And he says, no, it's not what you eat that makes you impure. It's what's already inside you. So um, when they decided that you didn't have to be circumcised, you also didn't have to follow the most the dietary laws because that was not considered essential for salvation. 833-288-EWTN. It's Open Line Monday with Father John Tregilio. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Grab one of these open phone lines at 833-288-3986. That's the number Patricia used, a first-time caller in the Republic of Texas listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Patricia, you're on with Father John Tregilio. Hello, Father. How are you doing? Fine. Thanks for calling. Yes. My problem, and it's just mine, I guess, the more I listen to EWTN, the Catholic Channel, with all the Catholic things, when priests start talking about that purgatory, almost everybody goes to purgatory, and they work their way up into heaven. I went to Catholic school, yes, many years ago. I'm 75, but I went for eight years. We had the Teaching Sisters of Notre Dame, and... They was always, they told us that purgatory was for those that wasn't quite blessed or didn't quite fill in the good parts of life. But if you worshiped, if you prayed, if you went to church, if you were kind and had love for people, that more than likely you'd go straight to heaven, not purgatory and have to pray your way out. Okay, well, well, nothing changed. The, the description was not accurate because the people in purgatory are not praying their way out of purgatory. Purgatory, all right, is not a punishment like the punishment is in hell. Purgatory is, the word purgatory comes from the Latin word purgatus, which means to be cleansed. And what's being cleansed, obviously, if you had mortal sin, you'd be in hell. What's being cleansed is your attachment to sin, uh, I give the analogy that if the doctor says, I've got good news, the tumor that's on your face is not malignant, so it won't kill you, but it's benign. Nobody wants to have that benign tumor still hanging on their face, do they, if they can have it removed? And what happens if he has to freeze it off? It's not going to you know, be painless, but you want it done because you want to look the way you're supposed to look. In purgatory, it's like burning away those benign tumors, our attachments to sin. We want it taken off. The, not it's not uh, absolutely mandatory that people go to purgatory if you don't have to go. There's some people who die very virtuous, holy lives. They go directly to heaven. Some people do their purgatory here on earth. Uh, I had a brother had muscular dystrophy. Uh, he died at 26. He spent a good portion of his life in a wheelchair. He suffered a lot physically. I believed, you know, there, there was no reason for him to have any purgatory whatsoever. That's just a personal belief. It's not a, a doctrinal one. Um, but I do believe there are. it is possible for people to go directly to heaven. But those who don't, the people in purgatory are not sad. They're there because they, they have a guaranteed ticket. It's like at the, air, at the airport, okay? You might not be in the first number one boarding line who gets on the plane first, 
But if you still have that number, you're getting on board, okay? And so the people in purgatory are absolutely positively going to heaven at some point, but they're not working their way through. That, that, that's a Pelagianism that we think that we can get you know, earn uh, merit points to get to heaven. But their, our prayers and their prayers somehow help. We don't know exactly how. That's why you should have masses offered for all your beloved dead. We don't know for sure, unless someone's been canonized, that this person is out of purgatory. So why cheat them? Pray for them, have masses said for them, uh, but don't see purgatory as sort of like you, you won second place. You didn't win first prize. Everyone who's in heaven got first prize. Does that help, Patricia? Well, it, it's not quite what I've always thought, but I'm listening to you. Uh, okay. Second thought, I have a cousin who's 91 years old, has a severe case of rheumatoid arthritis. And she was baptized Catholic because our whole family was Catholic at that time. But she picked the Episcopalian faith to spend her life going to church there, which she is a devout Episcopalian. She uh, raised her kids anyway. And it is one of the nicest, holiest people. When I need prayers, I call her and her prayer group, ask them to pray for things. Because she's not Catholic or has not practiced the Catholic faith, will she make it to heaven? Well, she'll make it to heaven if, if, if she lives a virtuous life, like you said. And as long as she did not reject the Catholic faith um, willingly, deliberately, knowingly, we don't know what a person's real reasons are for leaving the faith. We know what they could tell us, but only God himself knows. And uh, someone's in, 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 a, in a perilous situation where they know it is necessary to be a member of the church, the Catholic church, for salvation, if they know that and still reject it, it's different than someone who does not know that. They have a misperception, they have an erroneous idea, they were told something that was not accurate, uh, any number of things, uh, their ignorance uh, to an extent. Um, so that's what's the contingent aspect, because we do believe, you must believe in Jesus Christ, you must be uh, a, a member of his church, but through no fault of your own, okay, if you did not know all that, or you did not consciously reject all that. Uh, so we don't know. That's why it's, you know, it's good to pray for her. But um, yes, God's going to reward the goodness that she's done. Uh, it's not what, like Father Feeney said uh, years ago on the radio, you have to be a card-carrying member of the Catholic Church. But as uh, Dominus Jesus, the document that uh, uh, Pope Benedict and, uh, wrote, you need to be a member of the Church. And we have a lot of extended members who are members who maybe don't realize it, but it's through the church and through Christ uh, and the sacraments that, that, we, that we are saved. Uh, it's only somebody who consciously, fully, deliberately rejects that that's uh, in, in a mess. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. It's a free phone call anywhere in North America. 833-288-3986. Be sure to join us here on EWTN Radio every morning, Monday through Friday at 5 a.m. Eastern Time for the Chaplet of Divine Mercy. Again, 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Wide open phone lines for you at 833-288-3986. 
Uh, Mike says, I had someone tell me that religion cannot help a person go to heaven. How do I respond to this? <laughs> he heard that? <laughs> uh, well, I mean, um, we have to dispute that, obviously, because Jesus came and established a religion. Now, religion in general, whether it's you know Christian religion, Jewish religion, uh, any religion, is an act of justice one must acknowledge that there's a supreme being and that supreme being uh, merits our worship. So that's an act of justice, as St. Thomas Aquinas tells us in the Summa Theologica. So we owe that to God, but also religion is salvific, especially the religion that's been revealed to us by God. You know, the covenant that God made in the Old Testament between Abraham and the chosen people and the new covenant that Jesus established between um, God and the whole human race. Uh, that was of divine origin. Now we have religions of human origin that will not, you know, be salvific. They might help you be a good person, uh, but to be, to save your soul, it has to come from God Himself. And so, religion. Now, sometimes people, you know, confuse religion for, you know, institutions. The institutional aspect of the church is a component, but it's not its entirety. Uh, we say we look at the church as the bride of Christ, the mystical body of Christ. Um, we we see it as uh, you know the extension of, of of our Lord Jesus Christ here on earth through the seven sacraments. But you don't want to just limit it to uh, you know the function of of the Vatican or the diocesan chancery office. See it as Jesus portrays it because he uses the word church in the gospel. You know he says uh, I I will build my church. You know when he when he says to Saint Peter. I'll give you the keys to, uh, to my church. Why would he use a term and establish something unless it was necessary? Jesus was not superfluous in any way, sense, uh, or shape, or form. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. Uh, next up is Mary in Corpus Christi, Texas, watching us on YouTube. And Father John, I love rubber meets the road questions, and Mary has one for you now. Mary, you're on with Father John. Well, good afternoon, Father Jack. Thank you for taking my call. Since we are in the uh, three-year Eucharistic revival, um, I am just a little bit concerned about um, certain newly ordained priests, um, and not just one, but uh, where they pull out a water bottle sitting right next to the, beneath the tabernacle and drink casually during Holy Mass. And then I see people coming in and bringing water bottles. Um, how can you expect people, it just doesn't seem reverent to me. I agree with you a thousand percent, okay? Unless you have a medical condition, and there are a few people who have that, that they have to constantly be hydrated, all right? And, you know, that's a legitimate reason. But I think there's, what, one percent maybe of the church congregation that might have that condition? Um, yeah, it's mass is what, an hour on Sunday, a half hour on weekdays, that you have to be constantly drinking, uh, for health reasons, I think it's just a convenience, and I agree with you. It's not a, you know, obviously you're not breaking the fast because the Eucharistic fast is no liquid or food other than water. 
But when people bring water bottles in, priests, uh, lay people, I mean, I see seminarians bringing water bottles into the chapel. And I say, do you really have to consume that? Are you that dehydrated? I said, I know what, how important it is. I had a kidney stone. The doctor said, stay hydrated so that you don't get kidney stones. But that doesn't mean that every single minute of the day you're guzzling water. So I agree with you, especially in this um, renewal of Eucharistic devotion. We need to take things a little bit more appropriately. You wouldn't dare bring a bottle, bottle of water like, say, if uh, when Queen Elizabeth was alive and you were invited to Buckingham Palace, you wouldn't pull out some you know, bottle, bottle of Perrier and say and swig it down. Uh, you would drink what's set before you. But, you know, obviously if someone has a condition or you're at one of these marathon, you know, I've seen this at the Easter Vigil, uh, especially young children. Yeah, bring them a little water bottle because it is going to be an exceptionally long time. That's once a year, okay? So weekday Mass, Sunday Mass, uh, the way we have it set up today, I don't see the necessity, and I don't think people intend to be disrespectful, but they need to look at the optics, so I agree with you completely. You know what I've never seen at a Catholic church, at least what? to this point? Cup holders. <laughs> Or a water cooler. Yeah. <laughs> Just the holy I saw someone trying to consume holy water once, and I said, good luck, buddy. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Next up is Elizabeth in the great state of New Hampshire, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Um, Elizabeth, you're on with Father John. Thank you very much. Thank you, Father John. It's always a pleasure to listen to you. Um, I attend the Roman Catholic service, and then later in the morning I go and I attend the Eastern Catholic service. And sometimes I get confused and make the sign of the cross wrong. I don't mean to do it, but it's just they do it in opposite ways. Um, is this offensive to God if he knows that I'm not doing it intentionally? No, there's no... no, no I've done it myself, okay, as a priest... You're used to what your typical pattern of behavior is. And, you know, the reason why people bless themselves uh, differently in the Eastern churches, they were following, as the priest was giving the blessing, okay, like we normally do, uh, they were going like a mirror version of it. That's why it looks uh, reversed. But uh, that, that's been their custom. I, as a priest, you know, if I'm in the Byzantine a church, Eastern Catholic Church, or even in the Eastern Orthodox Church, I should follow their tradition. They don't kneel, they, they stand, but people forget. So Roman Catholic, Latin Rite Catholics go to an Eastern Rite Church, they'll typically genuflect, and people look at them, uh-oh, here's a Roman, all right? It doesn't offend them, all right? They're, they're glad you're there. It's just if you're going to go there more frequently, it would be nice to respect their customs and, you know, um, bless yourself as they do. They bless themselves every time the, the Holy Trinity is invoked. We don't do that in the Latin Rite. But when in Rome, do as the Romans. God bless you, Elizabeth. Thanks for the phone call. Next up is Tim, a first-time caller in Buffalo, New York, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Tim, you're on with Father John. Hi, Father John. How are you? I'm fine. i got a lot of family in Buffalo. <laughs> Great place to be. Anyway, uh, the reason I call, I, I've gotten in a lot of discussions with people, and I've made the statement that if somebody is sincerely looking for God, he is going to lead them to the Catholic Church. 
He's not going to lead them to any place else but the Catholic Church. And I'd just like to get your thoughts on that. Well, certainly, if, if, if we believe that Catholicism isn't just equally like, like one of many, uh, and we believe that the Church has everything you need for salvation, all seven sacraments, the fullness of grace, the fullness of truth, we have sacred tradition and sacred scripture, we believe that God would lead people to the place where it is in its fullest. That being said, some people, through, again, no fault of their own, don't realize that the Catholic Church has the fullness. They may be persuaded, they may take a detour, they may go to a place where they have some, okay? If you have two of seven sacraments, all right, you have the fullness, but two's better than none. Um, so we don't want to say that these people are, are condemned. Only if someone through consciously, deliberately, freely, and willingly realizes that they're missing out on all seven, missing out on the fullness of, of, of uh, God's uh, grace, then they're held accountable. But uh, we don't want to say we're just one of equal members of, of all the other uh, faith traditions, but we certainly don't want to snub our nose at, at people and say, well, you, you know, you're lost. No, they're not. Uh, they can still be saved. And it's our duty as Catholics, is that's how you bring people in church. It's not that we're, we're right and, and you're wrong, but say, look, we have the fullness of grace, the fullness of truth. I want to share that with you. And we think God himself wants you to have that uh, opportunity, that access to that fullness. How's that, Tim? Okay. Thank you. All right, you're welcome. 833-288-EWTN. Still time for your calls at 833-288-3986. Bill is another first-time caller in Tallahassee, Florida, listening on Guadalupe Radio. Bill, you're on with Father John. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Father John. I'm calling to ask you about uh, encyclical letters written by the popes over the years and how strongly we are uh, we are instructed to follow the... Uh, directives, the um, uh, the messages, uh, and and whatnot that they have in those letters. Okay, that's a very good question, and uh, it's one we get quite a bit here at the seminary from the, some of the seminarian students we have. Uh, encyclical letters, by their nature, are not ex cathedra statements. There's only two that we have uh, so far. When Pius IX declared the dogma of the Immaculate Conception, and Pius XII the dogma of the Assumption. Now, we have a lot of encyclical letters like Humani Vitae or Nuncio Sagittatalis. These have infallible teaching, but the document itself is not an infallible ex cathedra statement. Other encyclical letters cover a more pastoral tone or topic. Uh, They're considered non-infallible, all right, which means there's no guarantee of infallibility. However, the teaching in there is still considered binding, all right, we must submit Um, mind and will uh, to that authority, even though it doesn't have the guarantee of infallibility. So, for instance, um, other encyclical letters on the Sacred Heart of Jesus, um, you know, on on the the one that Pope uh, John Paul, he wrote so many of them, uh, on St. Joseph. These are not doctrinal that if you don't believe it, you you know, you're no longer Catholic. However, as a good Catholic, I must submit to the Pope's teaching authority, even though it may not be infallible. It may be non-infallible, which just means I don't have that guarantee, but it is of sound authority. Therefore, I should take it with great respect and not openly oppose it. 
833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. It's a free phone call anywhere in North America. 833-288-3986. Michael's watching on YouTube. He says, if a plenary indulgence is offered for someone who died, will that person then go immediately to heaven? Well, if all the conditions are, are, are met, it's possible. But one of the provisions is that the person who is uh, trying to obtain the um, plenary indulgence, either for themselves or for another person, you have to be completely free from all attachment, even the venial sin. And that there's no way you have metaphysical certitude. So if it's not plenary, it defaults to a partial indulgence. So that because you're, we're never 100% uh, sure, uh, we can't say, oh, yeah, well, I just offered up grandma's out of purgatory. Uh, you can hope that you were properly disposed, but it's not a waste of your time because even if it's not a plenary indulgence, it was the complete remission of temporal t- punishment due to sin. It may be at least partial. And again, something's better than nothing. So I would not want people to think, if I can't get the whole plenary, why bother? It's still going to be of assistance either to you or to the deceased that you're offering it for. 833-288-EWTN. That's our toll-free number. It's a free phone call anywhere in North America. 833-288-3986. Sandy would like to know, how can Mary be without sin and have free will? It's by the grace of God. (laughs) Uh, She was given a singular grace. Remember, the, the angel says, Hail, full of grace. Gratia plena in Latin. Que carito mene in the Greek. If something's full, if the glass is full, it means there's no room for anything else. If you're full of grace, there's no room for sin. And we believe that Mary was full of grace from the moment of her conception all the way through her life here on earth, but by God's divine will. Now, how does she retain her free will? She could at any time have said no. Uh, the angel, you know, when, she, when he announced it to her, she could have said, no, I don't want nothing to do with this. But she chose to submit her will to God's will, and that was something she did throughout her entire life. So although, metaphysically speaking, she still, I mean, you know, her will was operative, God's grace was also present among in her at all times. So it's a mystery. It's a mystery how you can retain your free will, and yet at the same time, uh, God's divine grace works uh, to its perfection. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. Finn would like to know, what's the difference between a blessed and a saint? A blessed is someone who's been beatified, which means one established miracle took place after their death. Uh, A canonized saint means there's been two uh, miracles uh, affected through their intercession after death. Canonized person is definitely in heaven. A blessed, a beatified is likely, could be there. It's just that they need that other miracle uh, for the Pope. And once the Pope declares someone a saint, that's considered an infallible statement, whereas a beatification is not. And explain what that means about a miracle being attributed to a, to a person. Some, usually it's a healing that takes place after the person's dead, and we believe that their intercession, it's God who affects the miraculous cure, but then it was uh, through the assistance of that powerful intercession, like with the case with Padre Peel, there were a lot of people who had ailments or diseases, or like recently with John Paul II, uh, people had uh, diseases or whatever, 
and then they were miraculously cured. Uh, immediate, full, instantaneous, miraculous cure that uh, science cannot explain, and it was attributed to the powerful intercession of the person uh, in question, and then the church can make a, uh, a judgment that, yes, uh, this person is indeed a saint in heaven, because if you're in purgatory or if you're in hell, there's no way you're going to be able to achieve that yet. And, and just, again, it's not that person who does it, it's God affecting the miraculous cure. And very quickly, I'm going to ask Steve in Cleveland's question for him uh, in the interest of time, but he uh, said his wife almost died last year in childbirth and wants to know if it would be licit for them to use contraception. The doctors say she wouldn't survive another pregnancy. I would say it's still beneficial to use the um, natural family planning, but the more most recent information available because it's just as effective if not more than the artificial ones you want to be careful because the artificial ones can be also abortifacients where then you're actually killing uh an embryo once fertilization takes place there's a human being in there and it's not actually contraceptive it's uh abortifacient that's why you want to avoid that at all costs so definitely talk talk to your your diocese or you know like the bioethics center in philadelphia that the bishops conference has established uh, talk to a, a doctor <clears throat> who's with the Catholic Medical Association. There are viable alternatives to the use of artificial contraception that can still save your wife's life, but at the same time saving her soul. And that National Catholic Bioethics Center can be found at nbccenter.org, nbccenter.org. Org, and there's a wealth of information there, and they can actually put you directly in contact with a Catholic bioethicist. Uh, if you call, you'll actually get to speak with uh, one of them directly. Well, Father John, the time has flown by. Once again, would you be so kind as to leave us with a blessing? Bendica vos omnipotens Deus, Pater, et Filius, et Spiritus Sanctus. Amen. Amen. Just getting started on another great week of EWTN's Open Line. We've just finished Open Line Monday with Father John Tregilio. Tomorrow we'll be talking faith, family, and fellowship with our very favorite Father of Mercy, Father Wade Menezes. On Wednesday, Father Mitch is in the house talking ancient languages, church teaching, and the like. Thursday, we'll speak with Father Brian Malady from Portland, Oregon. And on Friday, it's our very own Vice President of Theology, Mr. Colin Donovan. On behalf of our host, Father John Tregilio, our producer Michael McCall, call screener Matt Kubensky, and our social media maven, Mr. Jeff Burson. I'm Jack Williams. Thanks so much for tuning in. Back at it tomorrow. Until then, God bless.